Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, from COVID to Cold War, the administration is making the case, and strongly, that Beijing's recklessness unleashed the virus on the world. They could have contained it. President Trump now threatens to hold China accountable. On Dr. Whitehouse economic and trade advisor Peter Navarro, the administration's so-called super hawk on China. Also, bars, restaurants, and hair salons. Remember them? Well, in Sweden, they never close and its COVID infection rates aren't as bad as you might imagine. Why? We'll find out from the country's chief epidemiologist. Then, how do you protest in the age of COVID? We have images and answers. But first, here's my take. For all those of us who have watched with mounting terror as President Trump offers the public a series of his half-baked ideas and hunches on how to handle and treat and cure COVID-19, the solution seems obvious. Follow the science. Trump's detractors have taken up this mantra. Follow the science. Listen to the experts. Science, science, science. We're going to follow the doctors and the scientists. But what does that mean? After all, it was Dr. Anthony Fauci who initially downplayed the dangers of the coronavirus. On January 26th, he said, it's a very, very low risk to the United States. It isn't something the American public needs to worry about or be frightened about. And safety. A few days later, America. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar said this. The risk of infection for Americans remains low. To be fair, he was merely reflecting the views of the government's public health officials. At the same time, Trump advisor Peter Navarro, a non-scientist looking at the same data coming out of China, warned in a January 29th memo of the risk of the coronavirus evolving into a full-blown pandemic, imperiling the lives of millions of Americans, and urged aggressive action. It looks like the layman was right and the scientists were wrong. But putting it that way is too simplistic. The reality is that science does not yield one simple answer especially not with a new phenomenon like the coronavirus. Dr. Fauci came to a reasonable conclusion, given the initial evidence. As that evidence changed, he changed his mind. We tend to think of science as providing one definitive answer to a question. But that isn't really how it works. Science is, above all, a method of inquiry. The posing of questions and the rigorous testing of these hypotheses against data. With new and better data, we should arrive at new and better conclusions. Now, there are certain fields of study, climate change, for instance, where scientists have researched the topic for decades, collected mountains of data, published thousands of peer-reviewed studies, and arrived at a consensus. 
COVID-19 is entirely different. It's a phenomenon that is barely four months old with little definitive research. In an excellent piece about the pandemic posted last week, Bill Gates had a whole section on a number of key things we still don't understand. And these are central to fashioning the right response. One example, why do young people tend to do so much better with the disease? The answer, after all, would help us to decide how soon and under what conditions to reopen schools. Other questions, which activities make infections more likely? Does weather affect the virus's spread? Keep in mind that we do not have accurate numbers for the virus's rates of infection or spread or death. As we go through the process of locking down and now opening up, scientists around the world are gathering data at a furious pace. We should welcome this and use it to refine even reverse views about the pandemic. We should welcome those who have heterodox approaches. T.J. Rogers, the founding CEO of Cypress Semiconductors, ran an analysis of the available data that led him to conclude that the speed with which cities locked down had little appreciable effect on lowering the death rate from COVID-19. Now, it's a fairly crude model, but it's still worth looking at. It suggests, for example, that high population density is eight times more likely to correlate with a high death rate than a late lockdown is. This might explain why densely populated cities like New York with crowded public transportation networks have been hit so hard and why a state like Florida, despite waiting longer to lock down, has had relatively few deaths. And while it always makes sense to be cautious and plan for the worst, there are real costs to the precautionary principle. By canceling non-emergency medical procedures in anticipation of COVID-19 patients, Hospitals denied care to many sick people who got much worse as a result, even though it turned out many facilities had the capacity to care for both. Balancing such costs and benefits is ultimately not just about health. If we lowered the speed limit everywhere to 35 miles an hour, we would surely save lives. Yet we try to strike a balance between costs and benefits. Donald Trump's willful ignorance makes us all want to hand the country over to Dr. Fauci. But that is the wrong response. We need leaders who take responsibility and make choices informed deeply by science, but also by economics, politics, ethics, and other disciplines. Just as war is too important to be left to the generals, pandemics are too important to be left just to the scientists. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. I just told you about Peter Navarro's prescience on the damage the coronavirus could visit upon the United States. He is one of China's toughest critics in the administration as well. Navarro is the director of the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy, and he joins me now from the North Lawn of the White House. Peter, welcome. Good morning, Fareed. How are you? Very well. Let, let me begin by agreeing with you. Um, you say that China lied about the, the virus. And I think there's evidence uh, clearly that initially there was a cover up, whether at a local level or a national level, I think is unclear. But certainly the Wuhan and Hubei officials uh, misled people. But by January 30th, here's what we know. Uh, we know that China had, by its actions, demonstrated that they thought this was incredibly serious. They had locked down the entire city of Wuhan, 11 million people. 
The WHO had declared a global health emergency. There were confirmed U.S. cases of COVID. And most importantly, you had written a memo to the president, to the, to the coronavirus task force, outlining why you thought this was a pandemic. I want our viewers to, to see, and I want to quote from that memo, because it seems to me very relevant. You said, seasonal flu has an R naught of only 1.0. In contrast, China is reporting a possible coronavirus R naught of between three and five. In other words, China is reporting that this is much more serious than the seasonal flu. The risk of a worst case pandemic scenario should not be overlooked in light of the information provided by the Chinese government that is specific to the coronavirus. So it seems to me the best refutation of, of, your, th of your thesis is your own memo, which says on the basis of what the Chinese were telling the world, you concluded that there was a real risk of a global pandemic, as did the WHO. But the president took six weeks to act. Isn't that the problem? Uh, Freed, you're playing uh, fast and loose with the timeline. Let's let's go through the timeline. Patient zero in Wuhan uh, was likely infected about mid-November, as early as early December. Chinese officials were well aware of the possibility of a pandemic, and at that point, uh, over the next six weeks, they started uh, basically doing the biggest cover-up in world history. They bleached the Wuhan market, so we couldn't figure out what was going on there. They cleansed the records of the laboratories that were there. They made scientists from those laboratories disappear. And the problem, Fareed, is simple. If China had been uh, open and transparent at the beginning, we could have contained that virus right in Wuhan. Because of that six-week period that elapsed, hundreds of thousands of Chinese citizens got on planes, went to Milan, New York, all around the world, seeded the world with what became a pandemic. When I wrote that memo, hang on, when I wrote that memo on January 28th, the president had already decided at that point to put travel restrictions on China. And basically, here's the thing. A key date in this is January 15th. That's when the Chinese came here, Fareed, shook our hands, broke bread with us, and signed a trade deal. And nobody at that point had been told by the Chinese government there was human-to-human -human transmission of the possibility of a pandemic. Shortly after that, we found out a lot of things, and that's when President Donald J. Trump, HHS, and this White House began to operate at Trump speed, uh, and we've been moving uh, ever since at that speed. So I, I think it's unfair uh, not to point out the culpability of the Chinese Communist Party in turning what would, what would have been a contained thing into a pandemic. I say one more thing about this, Fareed. You called me a layperson at the beginning, which is fine. But I did write a book in 2006 called The Ch Coming China Wars. On page 150, I predicted that the Chinese Communist Party would create a viral pandemic that would kill millions of people worldwide. And, and it is now beyond my wildest nightmare what China has inflicted upon this world. Um, just to be clear, Peter, I, I just meant you were a layperson in comparison to a scientist. Both of us sure. have PhDs in political science. My kids I didn't always say, it. "I didn't I'm, take I, it as a criticism." Yeah. My my kids tell me I'm not yeah. a real doctor, and I take that uh, I take that point. Um, yeah. So let me ask you: You said um, sure. it in a in an interview to, uh, at, with Fox, um, they started it, they spawned the virus, uh, and yeah. you said it was likely from a bioweapons lab. Now, the scientists I've talked to all say that it's highly, highly unlikely that this came out of, uh, out of a lab, and it is certainly not a bioweapons program. 
uh, that the most likely it still, you know, the scientific consensus is that this came from a wet market in Wuhan. Do you have evidence that suggests that the Chinese intentionally, the words you use, they started it, they spawned the virus. Do you have evidence that the Chinese intentionally let loose this virus in the, in the world? Fried, you and I must be talking to different scientists and, and experts on this. Uh, what do we know? If you just take an Occam's razor approach, and you, that, the, that the, the most simplest explanation is the most likely, what, what we know is that ground zero in this pandemic uh, is where a P4 biological weapons lab resides. We know that. We know that the bat virus, no bats within 800 miles of that wet market that have that virus. Sure, they had bats, but not that kind of bat. That bat was imported by the famous China bat lady into the lab. But I think, I think we're gonna, we, we should let the question of whether it came from the lab or whether it came from the met, wet market ride for a little bit and simply stay with the fact that China hid the virus from the world. That's number one. Number two, while they were hiding the virus from the world, they went from a net exporter of personal protective equipment to a huge net importer, basically vacuuming up all the world. That killed people because public health officials at the front lines from Milan to New York didn't have that. And even as we speak, they are now profiteering from that. This is, we can hold accountable. Now, this morning, American citizens won't go to church because of the Chinese Communist Party. This afternoon, there's no baseball games. Tomorrow, American adults won't go to work. American children won't go to school. Cruise ships around the world are sitting out in the sea like flying Dutchmen. And we have these great, big, beautiful flying machines sitting on the ground gathering dust. That's all because China hid this virus from the world. It could have been contained and instead it turned into a pandemic. And I think it's important that, that the question be asked, should China be held accountable? And, and there'll be a lot of other people asking that question, including yourself, uh, to search for a, a good answer to that. We're gonna take a break. We're gonna come right back with Peter Navarro, talk about China and more when we're back. And we are back with the Trump administration's economic and trade advisor to the president, Peter Navarro. Um, Peter, in that interview with uh, Neil Cavuto in, uh, on the 25th uh, of April, you said um, when asked, when Cavuto asked you, how do you explain the president's many, many statements praising the Chinese? It's not, you know, it's not one, two, three. It's tweet after tweet saying they've been transparent, praising Xi Jinping, thanking the Chinese for their cooperation. Um, you said, well, there's a difference between public pronouncements and what you actually know. Um, are you implying that the president's tweets are um, not truthful? <laughs> Freed, look, uh, President Donald J. Trump has made it a practice of getting along with world leaders, including Xi Jinping, uh, Putin, uh, Merkel, all the leaders in the world. And it's useful when push comes to shove for the president to be able to put, pick that phone off and talk directly to the leaders. That's all I'm saying. I can also tell you that there is no one who understands the China problem better and longer than Donald J. Trump. He precedes me in terms of my research dating back to the early 2000s in understanding the problems with China. So please, uh, let's not go there. But w one of the things I'd, I'd love to talk about, because uh, I'm not into the gloom and doom stuff, 
um, is, is something that happened Wednesday, Freed, which I think is a historical event. I was in Kokomo with the vice president visiting a plant uh, there was a combined venture with General Motors and a small high-tech company from Seattle called Ventec. And I saw the future. I saw a president who had created the strongest economy in the world have a pathway to rebuilding this economy, which now has manufactured unemployment, but which will have a manufacturing renaissance. And here's what happened. The short story is 17 days it took for GM and Ventec to stand up a factory and an additional three days for UPS and Admiral Plovchek at FEMA to get those ventilators into hospitals in Gary and Chicago. Here's the bigger story. What GM did was they, they, they went to Ventec's facility, 3D imaged that, and then they 3D imaged all 700 components of Ventec's supply chain. And they immediately replicated that plant in Kokomo, they went across their whole supply chain, repurposed that supply chain to make those 700 components. And those ventilators were made in 17 days, made in USA. 97% of the content that was in those ventilators was made in the USA. What does that tell me as an economist? It tells me that as we move through these structural shifts, we're going to have to navigate very carefully as the world has shifted and the economy has shifted. We see a path forward with this repurposing, the innovation, the manufacturing might, the flexibility and the speed with which this was done was breathtaking. And it, it, I found it comical that a, a day which will be marked in the history books on Wednesday was not marked in the newspapers. All, all the newspapers wanted to talk about was who and who wasn't wearing masks that day. But that, Fareed, when you go back in time, 50 years from now, that will be the turning point in the recovery of the American economy, bringing its manufacturing capacity onshore and basically restoring this economy in a manufacturing economy that will make us stronger and more resilient. All right. Well, you got a chance to, to tell that story. So let me ask you, every expert says that if we're going to open up, you need testing. You need testing on a mass scale. You need testing where people are getting prioritized correctly, uh, access for those who need it. And most people, Bill Gates was on the show last week, said the U.S. testing system is chaotic. Uh, let me give you the tests per thousand. Even now, when the administration, President Trump, is touting the testing as a great success, here's where we are. We're testing 20 per thousand. Iceland tests 146 per thousand. Germany, 30. Russia, 27. Italy, 34. Australia, 23. Should we really be at the back of the list on testing if we're going to open up the economy? I think that you might be challenged on those statistics by some others in the administration. But let me look at this, Freed, from where I sit. My mission here at the administration during this, this pandemic has been to focus on making sure we have a supply chain that delivers things like testing and ventilators. So if you take the, the case of the ventilators, six weeks ago, uh, people were saying we didn't have enough ventilators. And what I was doing across the street, working with FEMA and HHS and people here in the building, was making sure we did. And, and now, by June, we're going to have over 100,000 ventilators. Nobody who needed a ventilator has been denied one. Now, with testing, Fareed, it's important. There's virus testing. There's also antibodies testing. 
the more we can do of each over time, the more will we be able to surveil and protect the American people to keep our workplaces open. The good news here, and it's a very good news, is just as with ventilators, as that curve went up with production, we are doing the same with both virus testing and antibodies testing. So I see a bright future ahead on that as we move into the summer and, and await a possible uh, problem in the fall. Uh, we, we are doing what we need to do as fast as we can do it. Well, Peter, we are out of time, and I, uh, I really enjoyed having this conversation. I hope we can have more. I continue to feel that the countries that, that seem to read your memo, even though, you know, even though it wasn't meant for them, metaphorically, the South Koreas, the Taiwans, the Hong Kongs, the Singapores of the world, seem to have done well by reacting quickly, and I just uh, wish we had, uh, we had reacted as quickly as they did. We, we think we did. <laughs> We're acting quickly, and in this President Donald J. Trump uh, moves stuff in Trump time. We are, we are moving mountains in this crisis. We and will, we will, free, we will, I appreciate the time here today. I appreciate it, sir. We would love to have you back. Thank you, sir. Anytime. Now, if you are wondering what the world will look like post-lockdown, so are we. And next week, we will bring you a special that looks at just that. What economics, politics, cities, and life in general will look like. It is called Post-COVID-19 World, and it will air next Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern. Next on GPS, did you know there is a Western country that essentially never locked down, and its COVID rates didn't skyrocket? We will take you to Sweden when we come back. And now to the very curious case of Sweden. The Nordic nation has not subscribed to most of the lockdown measures that the rest of the Western world, indeed much of the world, has adhered to. If you're hungry, you can go to a restaurant in Sweden. Thirsty? The bars are open as well. You need a haircut? Not a problem. Just go to the next barbershop or salon. As for kids, the young ones at least are still in school. The result, the death rate in Sweden is higher than in neighboring countries, but not as high as Spain and Italy, for instance. Parts of the scientific community in Sweden have been up in arms, but the man who came up with Sweden's approach is a scientist as well. That man is Anders Tegnell. He is Sweden's chief epidemiologist, and he joins me now. Dr. Tegnell, pleasure to have you on. Let me ask you to begin... Thank you. Let me ask you to begin by explaining very simply... Why did you decide, in contravention of almost every other uh, major country, that you did not need to do a lockdown in Sweden? I think because we really, from very early on, thought we could achieve the same kind of effect using the normal Swedish system for public health and, and work a lot with voluntary measures, working a lot with giving a lot of responsibilities to, in, to the individuals in, in our country. And does that mean you think that you can achieve a large part of what you need to do? That, in other words, you can flatten the curve enough by just putting out some guidelines and you don't have to shut schools, you don't have to shut restaurants, etc. In other words, you get enough bang for the buck, as it were? Yeah, I think so. And I think so far, six, seven weeks into the epidemic in Sweden, uh, we have managed to do that. We have a very flat curve. Our health system is still working. It's a tough time for them, but they have never been overburdened, actually. And at any given time, there's been at least 20% of the ICU beds have been empty. Um, travel in Sweden has been cut down by at least 90%. Uh, a lot of people are staying home. Um, 
our flu yearly flu epidemic usually lasts for like six, eight weeks, suddenly stopped after four weeks when we instituted these measures. So I think we get a lot of uh, effect from from the things we do. Can you explain uh, the death rate? Because you have in Sweden a death rate that is uh, a good bit higher than in your neighboring countries, though, as we pointed out, not uh, compared to the worst countries in Europe. But why do you think was this was there, uh, you know, did this kind of is this an unintended or, uh, uh, you know, accidental occurrence or is it, you know, is it a cost you had to pay? I think it's definitely an unintended occurrence. It's not something we counted on, not something we wanted. And there is two two different, I think, reasons for this. One is that actually our incidence in Sweden has been much higher than in our neighboring countries. I think we are quite sure about that because our testing capacity has been limited. And I think the number of people in Sweden that has been infected so far has been quite a lot greater than in our neighboring countries. That's one part of the answer. The other part is that we had an unfortunate number of um, introductions of the disease into our elderly homes in Sweden. And that has really caused a, a very high level of mortality in those places. And that's been very unfortunate. But a, a large part of our mortality has taken place in those institutions. So do you think that that means we should be approaching this uh, this disease uh, slightly differently, even, particularly as we move into opening up in the rest of the, the world, which is um, there should be greater emphasis in terms of guidelines and quarantine measures for old people, because uh, in much of the Western world, at least 80 to 90 percent of the hospitalizations seem to be for people who are over 60 or 65. So rather than quarantining everybody, you know, in a sense, is there a way to be a little bit more firm in the quarantine measures for those people who are really at risk? Yeah, I think so. And I think we're all learning as we're going uh, with the disease. It keeps on surprising us in different ways. But I also think you, you really need to adapt your measures to your uh, to the way your country works. Uh, and I think that's what we have done in Sweden. We, we use the tools we normally use in public health. And I think that's the reason why it works so reasonably well so far. What is your uh, reaction to the American strategy um, of hand- handling the coronavirus? I think from my point of view, I don't, I don't know the details. You had an unfortunate start. Uh, I think that's you can tell that from countries who had an unfortunate start, like Italy, and a few others, then you you very quickly get into major problems. Uh, when you've been able to sort of keep it reasonably low for for some time and can adapt and get your hospital system to scale up, get your testing system to scale up and so on, uh, it's a lot easier to handle it even if also then you will have high mortality and a lot of cases and, and, a, strain, and a strain on your, your health system. But if you miss it in the very beginning, uh, then this disease can really cause havoc. Do you think that having a, a highly decentralized uh, healthcare system the way the United States does makes it harder? I, 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 I notice when looking at your system, you're able to make very quick and efficient um, decisions from the center. Yeah, but that's only partly so. I mean, even in Sweden, being small, we also have a highly decentralized system. Uh, but there is also a possibility and there is a, a lot of experience on, on working together when we have to. So even if it's highly decentralized, the, all the decisions are taken out in the regions. There's 20 regions in Sweden. 
uh, still, when we have this kind of crisis, uh, we all come together and work together. So it looks like we're having uh, a lot of critical decisions taken at national level, but actually all of them need to be repeated at local level. Would it be fair to say that your basic strategy was to try to find um, some way to deal with the coronavirus that w- where you got you allowed the maximum amount of economic activity while still getting the curve down so that it was sort of sustainable? No, uh, economic activity has never played into our decisions. I mean, it has, of course, played into the government's decision. And it is the government in the end that takes a decision. But our advice to the government has been really completely focused on public health. But sustainability is an important part of it. So we all knew from the beginning that this was going to be a long haul. We're going to have to live with this virus, with this disease for a long time. So we need to find solutions that we can keep on doing for a long time. And we all know that we can't close schools for months. Uh, we can't close the borders for months and, and these kind of things. So we try to work, start working with the things that we believe are sustainable for a long time and then maybe add a few things uh, when, if it gets out of hand, that we can have for a shorter time. But to really start with, with the things that we can keep on doing. Dr. Tegnell, pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you. Next on GPS. More on President Trump blaming and shaming China. My next guest will explain what effect Donald Trump's words have had on the Asian American community. That story when we come back. At the end of March, the foreign ministers of the G7 countries met to discuss how to handle the coronavirus. These meetings usually result in a final joint statement from the ministers. But at this meeting, there was no such thing because the United States reportedly insisted that the statement call it the Wuhan virus after the Chinese city where the pandemic began. It's part of a pattern. Trump and his allies are intent on demonizing the Chinese. How does that feel if you're a Chinese American? Joining me now are Jia Yang Fan, a staff writer for The New Yorker, and Erica Lee, the author of America for Americans, A History of Xenophobia in the United States. Jiayang Fan, let me ask you, what is your sense of what the connection is between this kind of rhetoric and, you know, what, what the way Chinese Americans perceive it? You reported on this a lot, but also I wondered personally, has it affected you? Right. So as an Asian American who's lived in this country for more than two decades, I don't think that racism is new, um, both you know, very the the very over variety and the um, somewhat you know subtle variety. Uh, but what I have noticed in the last few months is how pronounced that has become. For me personally, uh, I live in New York City, one of the most cosmopolitan and diverse cities in America in the world, and I'm not Pollyannish about uh, not looking like. Um, you know, the majority of um, uh, citizens in this city. But in the last few months, um, I've experienced a very definite uptick of of um, being mocked or thrown racial slurs for being Chinese. Um, the most egregious incident was um, one night when I was taking out the trash um, after days of being cooped in, as so many of us are, and being called... Um, 
a Chinese bitch. And uh, uh, that was actually, I think, hours after uh, President Trump referred to the new coronavirus as the Wuhan, as the Chinese virus. Um, Professor Lee, is this a kind of big shift in recent uh, decades between, you know, from um, Asian Americans as being seen as kind of the model minority? Um, how does this, what does this look like in history? Unfortunately, it's nothing new. What the president and many of his allies and many other Americans are doing, it's really building on a very long history of anti-Chinese and also anti-Asian racism, a, a rhetoric and narrative that has long associated Asian peoples, no matter how long they've been in this country, as foreigners, as forever foreigners, and as threats as well. In fact, I suppose one could go back to the, uh, the Exclusion Act, which is the first time the, the United States had an immigration ban specifically aimed at a, at a country or an ethnicity, right? Right. So the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act is the first federal law that singles out an entire immigrant group uh, for exclusion based on race and class. It was, interestingly enough, it was it was considered a temporary measure, much like many of the executive orders that President Trump has signed into uh, into law. But it actually ended up lasting for 61 years. It had generational consequences. It legitimized uh, anti-Asian racism. We see a, an uptick in um, hate violence, in massacres, in wholesale driving out of Chinese Americans from little towns as well as big cities. So this kind of, of, of rhetoric of xenophobia and racism that's coming out from our political leaders really has direct consequences. We've seen this in the past as part of history, and we're seeing it today in the number of, of rising hate crimes. Uh, Jiayang, do you think that, um, is this something that has, seems to affect uh, all Asian Americans? Uh, you know, the president and his allies often talk about the Chinese, the Chinese. Americans, you know, maybe perhaps most people would not be able to distinguish uh, as easily between the Chinese and Koreans and uh, Japanese Americans, um, do you think that there is a kind of a solidarity growing among all Asian Americans? I think that uh, for me, um, I do sense that um, it, it's not affecting only Chinese Americans. As, as you've said, it's hard to distinguish between Korean Americans and Vietnamese Americans and Japanese Americans. And it's unsettling for me to hear the number of friends um, and co-workers who have said who are not Chinese but who look um, who, but who are of the Asian ethnicity who have said oh I no longer speak my uh, native language in public or I feel compelled to wear sunglasses or to cover my face to disguise the fact that I am ethnically uh, Chinese. I think that there is this growing sense of uh, solidarity. The solidarity is great, but it's very unfortunate that it's coming from this moment when we feel united by the by by this looming threat that being out in public, speaking um, a language that is not English might make make us victims. Professor Lee, you know, how lasting are these kind of attitudes? It's absolutely very similar to that rise of hate crimes after 9-11, where 
Muslim Arab Americans, people who were mistook to be Muslim and Arab appearing uh, were were targeted with growing hate crimes. Um, what's interesting about um, the way in which xenophobia and racism works is that it certainly can be activated during times of crisis, like uh, the situation that we're experiencing now, but it also needs to work with uh, active promotion with politicians and others really, you know, using this rhetoric very often and casting blame, um, creating certain racial scapegoats. So in fact, many years after 9-11 and during the 2016 presidential election, uh, the FBI and other organizations actually recorded a, a historic rise in the number of, of Islamophobic um, acts and hate crimes. And that is it, uh, totally connected to the Islamophobic statements of the president. Erica Lee, Jianyang Frank, thank you. Fascinating conversation. Thank you. Next on GPS, how do you protest in the age of social distancing? As it turns out, very differently. I'll bring you examples from around the globe when we come back. My book of the week is Has China Won? by Kishore Mabubani. At a time when U.S.-China relations have gotten more tense than at any period in decades, this is a very valuable book that presents views most Americans will find challenging and controversial. Mabubani says that the best way for America to raise the standards of living and quality of life of its people is to cooperate with China. But he wonders if Washington is more comfortable with a more familiar model of conflict. And now for the last look. Of all the activities that have been adapted to suit our new socially distant reality, one might surprise you. Protests. As The Atlantic notes, Israelis showed us an early example of large-scale socially distant protest late last month in Tel Aviv. Thousands of people in masks stood six feet apart to protest Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who managed to form a unity government last month with his chief rival, Benny Gantz. The deal is opportune for Netanyahu because it means he will be in power during his corruption trial, which begins later this month. The prime minister has denied any wrongdoing. The Israelis are not alone, though. In March, millions of Brazilians took to their balconies and windows to protest Bolsonaro, who has recklessly downplayed the virus threat. <laughs> to be fair, these are countries that are allowing their citizens to protest. There are, of course, others that are cracking down on the very right to assembly and against government critics in general. And COVID-19 makes it dangerous, literally, for people to assemble to demonstrate or protest, which is a great boon to dictatorships. So here's hoping the resourcefulness demonstrated in Tel Aviv and elsewhere serve as an inspiration to many. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I'll see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.